Good evening, sisters. Felt like I hit Sister Lotto tonight. This is incredible. But sometimes the lottery is not so great. Michael Linsky wins lottery, winds up on the wrong side of the mob. Man wins 75000 blows up his house. Amanda Clayton wins a million dollars and gets arrested for welfare fraud. Jose Antonio wins $750,000, gets kicked out of the U.S. Timothy Elliott violates his parole by winning a million dollars. In his article, Will the Lottery Ruin Your Life?, Robert Frank cites several tragic stories, like that of Jack Whitaker, the West Virginian who won $315 million. He was robbed at a strip club. And then his granddaughter died under strange circumstances. Within five years of winning his $315 million, his bank accounts were largely emptied. And he told reporters, I wish I had just torn up the ticket. Yet Robert Frank's article, citing several academic studies, concludes that the majority of lottery winners turn out just fine. Here's why. A study by the University of California researchers found that sudden wealth only exaggerates your current situation. If you're unhappy, bad with money, and surrounded by people you don't trust, money will make those problems worse. If you're fulfilled, careful with money, and enjoy a life of strong relationships, the lottery could make those strengths better. So whereas receiving lottery winnings does not change us, but instead reveals who we really are, receiving the kingdom of heaven brings out who we really are in order to change us. Whereas receiving lottery winnings does not change us, but instead reveals who we are, exaggerates maybe who we are, receiving the kingdom of heaven brings out who we really are in order to change us. In Matthew 13, as we've looked the last couple of weeks, after five parables describing how God enables one to receive the kingdom of heaven, Jesus then tells two small treasure parables, illustrating the life of one who has been given eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to respond to Jesus' message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Will you stand with me to read Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46? And Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Father, we thank you that you would send your son to us to bring the kingdom that would call this kingdom into question. I pray, Father, that you would give each of us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to respond to the message of Jesus for his glory and our joy. Amen. You can have a seat. So here in these two small parables, we discover the words of Dutch theologian Edward Schickelbecks. Christianity is not a message which has to be believed, but an experience of faith that becomes a message. You may recognize that from the intro of your week's study. Christianity is not a message 
which has to be believed, but an experience of faith that becomes a message. So through his parables, Jesus describes for us here what it means to be a Christian, what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven. First, it is to discover what we do not have, then to decide we must have it, and then to experience the difference it makes to have what we did not have. So I'll try that again. It is first to discover what we do not have, to decide we must have it, and then to experience the difference it makes to have what we did not have. So first, discovering what we do not have. Sometimes this happens unknowingly. The first parable, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. So we've got this Joe Blow. He's going his way when the unexpected confronts him. Now, there's a lot of speculation. Was he working the field? Was he just traveling through the field? What was he doing? That's not the point of the parable. We need to be really careful that we don't spend a lot of time on what isn't there because we will miss what is there. The man is not looking for hidden treasure. Surprisingly, he finds it. Now, in the ancient world, this was not unusual for treasure to be hidden in the ground. This was a land that was constantly fought over, marauding armies coming and going. And so you wouldn't hide your valuables. Well, they didn't have banks. And then you wouldn't hide them in your home. You you would bury them so that when everything died down, you could go back and retrieve it. So valuables, again, were not hidden homes due to raiding armies in this most fought-over land in the world. And so it was not uncommon to find treasure of one who had died before retrieving it. And interestingly, the Jewish law at the time was finders keepers. If you found treasure in a field, it was presumed that the person was gone and you could rightly keep it. So the fact that this man covers it up culturally, covers it up and seeks to buy it means he's actually going above and beyond. He's not doing something shady. He's ensuring that he can get this treasure. And we also know that the landowner must, must not have been his treasure or he wouldn't have sold the land in the first place, right? So there is things that aren't clear, but we need to focus on what is clear again. So through here, though here, in its present form, the kingdom is often missed. That's the point Jesus is making. Though here, in its present form, the kingdom is often missed. The kingdom does not force or impose itself yet it is found by those not expecting to find it. Is that just the most amazing thing? Is that so God? The kingdom does not force or impose itself, yet it is found by those not expecting to find it. How many of you here are here tonight? You were not looking. It found you. Isaiah 65, 1, we have this incredible promise from God given to the prophet Isaiah. God speaking, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Yet, we also know that the kingdom is also found by those searching for it. This is our second parable. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Some discover the kingdom as a result of knowingly searching for what they do not have. They're looking for something they don't have. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Unlike the man in the field, this merchant is searching. But like the man in the field, what the merchant finds is unexpected, surprising. Notice in Jesus' parable, details do matter. The merchant is looking for fine pearls, plural. But he finds one that is more than many. In the ancient world, pearls were highly valued. They were valued more than gold. 
Pearls were said to be worth up to the millions in today's money. In Jesus' day, finding expensive pearls emphasized the finder's righteousness or piety of goodness. If you could find a good pearl, that meant you were good. That was a Jewish thinking of the day. And there was a common Jewish tale about a tailor who pays an outrageous price for a fish because he needs it to keep the Sabbath. And in it, he finds the pearl that supplies his needs for the rest of his life. These were the kind of stories and tales that went around. So when Jesus spoke of a pearl, he is speaking of righteousness, religion, being good. Though we may value being religious, there is something more valuable, and we will see this unfold. But for now, what is important to see at the beginning of these two parables is that whether we are irreligious, we are not looking for what we do not have, or whether we are religious, trying to find something, trying to find something good, trying to find our own righteousness, we only find the kingdom because he put it there for us to find it. Whether we are irreligious or religious, we only find the kingdom of heaven because God put it there for us to find it. John 6, 65, Jesus says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. There was a long time that I thought I was the searcher, that I really had been searching for God. I didn't become a believer until I was later in my teens. And when I moved out of my parents' home and I found my little first communion Bible, I grew up Catholic. You know, that was a really white, precious little Bible that you weren't supposed to write in. And I found my little seven-year-old Bible, and I had underlined and highlighted and wrote notes in it. And I realized, I didn't find God. He had been finding me. Like the anonymous hymn, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior true. No, I was found of thee. Both irreligious and religious, both looking and not looking, have their eyes opened to what they do not have when they find the kingdom in such a way as they must have it. Both the irreligious and the religious, when they have their eyes opened by God to the kingdom of heaven, they see what they do not have in such a way that they must have it. And here we have deciding what we must have. In his joy, the man goes and sells all that he has. Finding one pearl, the merchant sells all he has. Both knowingly sell out. Sell out everything. Don't miss what Jesus says about the man and implies about the merchant. The joy came before the selling off. The joy came before the selling off. A joyful anticipation, a skipping, a grinning, if you will, that overwhelms them that overwhelmed all they had ever been about. There was an internal desire, an intrinsic desire, to sell off what they had to gain what they did not. There was this internal desire to sell off what they had to gain what they did not. What they did have was nothing in light of what they did not have. And we see this around us. One of the most common examples I'm sure you've heard it before, is that when you, have, when you have a loved one that is suffering from an incurable disease, what was once so valuable, what was so valuable you would never sell it, if you knew there was a cure out there and it cost you everything, you would liquidate everything. What was once valuable is no longer valuable in light of a human life. 
And many of us have known women who, even against the urging of their families, have walked away from everything for love. The promise of a life they don't have is worth the life they do have. These two men did not have to be told to sell it off, for their heart had already sold it before they ever did the actions. Their affections had already been transferred. This is what Jesus means when he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 21. So today, tonight, and I think we've talked about this before, our heart is treasuring something. Our heart is treasuring someone. Who is it? What is it? Do you know? Where does your mind go naturally, effortlessly? What do you think about when you fall asleep? What, do you, what comes to mind first when you wake up? What do you fantasize about? What do you long for? What is, your, what is in your life now that if it were gone, you would not want to live? You would be devastated. You would not want to get out of bed. Two ways we come to God, without our heart and with our heart. And if you're like me, you've done both. What do I do? What do I have to do to get from you, God, what I want? Or at least stay out of trouble. This is fear-based. It's bargaining. There's no joy. There's no heart transfer. There's no affection. With our heart is what can I give to you, God, that is keeping me from knowing you? What can I give up? What can I give up that is keeping me from knowing you? What can I do to gain you? Our hearts will not treasure the kingdom hearts will not be transferred until our eyes and our ears are open to what its king has done to bring the kingdom here. God sent his greatest treasure, his one and only beloved, eternal, perfect son to us. Jesus left the riches and the glory, the perfection, the unending love of heaven to become a doorway for you and I. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The scriptures teach us that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He created the universe, and yet he had no place to lay his head. Essentially homeless. Jesus gave what the Father asked of him in every area of his life. I do exactly as the Father tells me, he said, and he did. Jesus did what his Father asked in every single way. And Jesus accepted what the Father gave to him, death in our place. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured your and my cross Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, and Hebrews 12, 2, yet it was the will of the Lord, the Father, to crush Jesus. He, was put, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, you and me. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. As Jesus was being crucified, he was satisfied with what it would, what it would bring, you and me. Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus became the man we refused to be. 
living the life we ought to have lived, to give us back the life we lost. That is what he is doing at the right hand of the Father right now. He is bringing every enemy under his foot, which you and I once were and now are not. He's bringing every enemy under his foot, and he is bringing the fullness of all things, and then he will return and bring us into the life that we lost the unimaginable life, 1 Corinthians 2.9, but as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But we get a picture in the life and ministry of Jesus, his life-transforming words, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. His miraculous works, pick up your mat and walk. These are a picture of the kingdom. These are the kingdom of heaven breaking into the kingdom of earth, giving us a taste of what we will have for all eternity when the lion will lay down with the lamb and the child will play with the cobra. Can you imagine? His resurrection, the assurance that it will come. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Can I hear an amen? God gave us his heart's treasure. We have no concept of what it costs, father and son. When Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The treasure God gave. He gave us his heart's treasure that he would become ours. To not want to give Jesus everything means we have not yet realized what he has given for us. When by the Holy Spirit our eyes are opened to Jesus giving himself completely for us, we will want to give ourselves completely to him. And if we are determined to give whatever we have for whatever we do not have, then we can be sure that God is more than determined for us to have it. He gave his only son. If we are determined to give whatever we have for what we do not have, then we can be sure God is more than determined for us to have it. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? From the parables, we see that being sold out is an intentional decision to let Jesus remake our life, not just rearrange it, to own it, to overtake it, not just organize it. Scottish poet and minister in the 19th century, George MacDonald, has his own parable that fits so beautifully. Imagine your life as a house. God comes in to renovate that house. At first, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you know those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But after a while, he starts knocking the house around in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he is building quite a different house from the one you ever thought of. He is throwing on a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there and running up towers and making courtyards. You thought when you first came to him, he would make you into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. 
Why? He intends to live in it himself. He intends to live in it himself. This is the difference it makes when we have what we did not have. Knowingly, the man buys a field. Knowingly, the merchant buys the pearl. Both men spent all they had to acquire what they did not. But don't miss this, ladies. They did not buy their salvation. Their salvation bought them. They did not buy their salvation. Their salvation bought them. They were captivated by it. Entering the kingdom of heaven by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we knowingly sell off guilt and shame and we gain peace. We knowingly sell off uncertainty and fear and we gain hope. We knowingly sell off regret and gain joy. Is that not why we came in the first place? But entering the kingdom of heaven, becoming a Christian, truth be known, we really don't know what we've gotten ourselves into, do we? A wing over here, an extra floor there. Not what we were expecting. We want to be a decent cottage, and he wants to build something completely different. No. Becoming a Christian, we really don't know what we've gotten into. Yet, we discover that when Jesus is our heart's treasure, we are never, ever disappointed. When we give him what he asks, when we do what he asks, obey his word. When we accept what he gives in any area of our life with expectancy and hope. G.K. Chesterton writes, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Don't miss this. Men, women have not got tired of Christianity. They have never found enough Christianity to get tired of. It's not that we're tired of Christianity. It's that we have never found enough, there is never enough Christianity to ever get tired of it. I was given permission from a dear friend about to share about her conviction and her courage in inviting me into her struggle with alcohol. She knew it had become too important. And although it was a process to move from the intention to sell it off, and quit, and actually doing it, it was joyful anticipation that caused her to finally do it. More and more captivated by Jesus' great love for her, she began to consider not what she would be missing if she gave up the alcohol, the drinking, but what she would gain. In her words, life. And she is now seeing what she is holding on to that was underneath the abuse of alcohol, a new thing to sell off with expectancy. See, the selling off is not over, but neither is what she will gain as her heart's affections are transferred from drinking to Jesus. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you do not, nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. 
Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Luke 9:24 Jesus says for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it So what about you and me Is there anything you cannot live without Maybe you're really not living because of it Is it alcohol Is it for you drinking what is your go to what is what has become too important? What has your heart's affection? Will you sell it off? When we do, we will never want what we sold back, for what we get back is far more. Every created thing, oh, this has been such a painful process. For me, every created thing our hearts desire, they're good things. But every created thing our hearts desire or treasure are like a sunset or a wave at the ocean. They come to us, but they go back out again. We cannot hold on to them. They are elusive, whether they're children or our looks or romance or marriage or money or health or career, status, significance. This is the nature of this world's kingdom. It is ever-changing. Things come and things go. But when we enter God's kingdom, our heart begins to treasure the creator over the created things. And now we are swimming in the waves as they come and go out. And what I mean by this is that the blessings we have are experienced as a foretaste of what is to come. The hug of a child. The taste of a fantastic meal. The dream vacation. They're not ends in themselves. They're tastes of what is to come, of what we will enjoy for all eternity, magnified. And the sorrows and the challenges, they find purpose. And they are redemptive because we know someday God will set all things right. And when we get into eternity, we will look at those sorrows and sufferings and we will say in the words of C.S. Lewis, of course, we will know why. They came to us through God's hands of love. See, all that is expendable, sellable, that we can sell off, should sell off, is more valuable because we can. What he gives is more treasured when we don't have to have it. When I have to have my children, when my heart is in, when they are, when they are my greatest treasure, they have the power to destroy me, and I certainly do destroy them. Corey Ten Boom writes, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. And sisters, I don't want you to misunderstand me. This is not about putting Jesus first, making a list of all the things in our life, and as long as we keep Jesus first, then everything will be okay. No, this is about putting Jesus central. Central to everything we have, central to everything we do, central to everything that comes to us. When I was first asked to go across the world to work with our underground sisters suffering for the gospel, that was over 10 years ago. With four children at home and one with severe special needs, when I began to believe it was God asking this of my family and me, I was understandably questioned about my priorities. This isn't safe. You're a mom. Shouldn't that come first? 
I had to go to the Lord, but not to ask him which should come first, my suffering sisters or my children. I had to go to the Lord to ask, is Jesus and his kingdom central to this decision? For me, for Jeff and I, Jesus central meant to go. To trust our children would only gain even if not by the world's standards. Yet I'll be honest with you, in another time, in another place, it would be wrong for me to go. It would not be, Jesus would not be central. What would be central is me being important or having an adventure or you thinking well of me. In that case, going is not the right thing to do. So it's not that simple. And that's why we don't put Jesus first and then everything underneath it. Jesus has to be central. Is this about the kingdom or is this about my queendom? And I've gotten it wrong so many times, too many times to count. So you press in on me and you push me about my decisions and you ask me. I invite you to do that and I hope you do it to each other, for each other. Is the decision that you're about to make, is the kingdom central? Is the king what is, what is fueling the affection of what you will do or not do? I need you to press in on me. I need you to fan the affections of my heart for Christ because they are naturally bent on me. And is that not why we're here tonight together? This is why Michelle and I will gather with your sisters next week around the world. This is why we will open the word to see the beauty of what Jesus did, is doing, and will do. To confess our main problem which is not what we do or don't do. This is the point of the parable, but to confess our misplaced affections. See, I was told a long time ago, and it was the most freeing thing, that sin is not about breaking rules. It's about breaking a relationship. The rules are just an outflow of breaking the relationship, and we focus so much on what I don't do and do do, and I, I have to do this and I can't do that, and my sin is, is, and those are sins when we disobey God's word, but underneath breaking the rules is breaking relationship. And so repentance, true repentance, is not just about repenting of our actions, what we didn't do that we should have done or what we did do that we shouldn't have done. Repentance is for not loving. And when we're repenting to Jesus for not loving him as we should, that is love in itself, and so it renews our love. I have permission to share this with you. Jeff and I went through a period in our marriage um, that most marriages, if you're married long enough, do. So if you're there, hang on tight and pray. Where it was pretty loveless. And it was a really painful time. And that's another story for another day. The point is, at, at one point, Jeff came to me and he said to me, I have not been loving you. Will you forgive me? And I realized at that moment, that was the most loving thing he could possibly have done, is to admit it. And that began a process of restoration, of renewing our love. And that is so with our Jesus. Repenting for not loving him renews the love. Our hearts sold, our affections transferred, in joyful anticipation, we begin to sell it all again for him. And we find that we are continually surprised at the riches we have we once didn't. A taste of his kingdom fulfilled. 
that we might spend our lives in joyful anticipation of what's next and when he returns. And we will be continually surprised at the treasure that we get to become. We become his entrances to the, his kingdom come. You and I become the treasure someone uncovers on the field. Christianity is not a message which has to be believed, but an experience of faith that becomes a message. Sisters, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God indwells you. You are now his treasures. You are the incarnation of Jesus. You are kingdom insights for the world, and you show them the entrance. Jesus, you are the pearl of great price. 2 Corinthians 4, 6-7, through 7, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this, sisters. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, these bodies, the treasure of the Holy Spirit, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is just huge. For people both going on their way and for people seeking a way, for both the religious and the irreligious, we are his unexpected kingdom treasure. You are a treasure found in the field of this world. Eyes opened by God to see in us what they do not have. Ears opened by God to hear from us what they must have and a difference made for all eternity. Father, as we continue tonight, as we gather with sisters, treasures in jars of clay, your spirit, may our heart's affection for our Jesus be fueled. May we tonight, in our joy, sell all we have. For your glory and our joy. Amen.